Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast by the Timothy Project. Tune in to an intriguing, mind-stimulating podcast where your mind-boggling questions in the Bible are analyzed. Simply breaking down mysteries in the Bible, precept upon precept in the scriptures until we see Jesus. Be blessed as you listen. Hello, family. Welcome once again to Between the Lines, the official podcast for the Timothy Project Ghana. And it's your girl, Eugenia Kelly. We're back again with a new episode of our new series, Holy Writ. And it has been an educative and exciting journey so far. I can't wait to sink my teeth into the topic for today. I mean, I'm pretty sure everybody has some misconception about it. But today we're going to clear all of that up. And as usual, we have our pastor, Bethmond, in the building. Pastor B, how far? <laughs> I'm fine, Eugenia. I'm very, very good. Awesome. Glad to hear it. Also, we have so two. How are you doing? Hello. I'm doing well by God's grace. I'm glad to be here today. Awesome. 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 So before we move into what's Um, we're discussing for today. I mean, so far in the series, we've talked about um, God behind the curtain and the initial initial blog post for this new series, um, Breathe by God. And I mean, so far we've been revealing how the Bible came to be and why it came to be and all of that. What's your thoughts so far on the, on how the series, the episodes that have been released? So too. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, it's for me personally. I, it's an informative um, source of information that we are we are we are garnering from the blog post and even the um, podcast discussions. Uh, for the longest time, um, a lot of people w- within the Christian uh, circles are not exposed or privy to um, a lot of the, I mean, a lot of information concerning how the Bible was put together. And so you see, you find um, Christians finding it difficult to answer questions like, um, who wrote your Bible? Like, where does it come from? And, and all of that. And those kinds of questions, if you don't have answers to, they seem to derail any conversations that you may be having with somebody concerning faith, concerning repentance, and concerning the way that God wants them to go. Because it looks as though um, the, the documents that you are basing your belief on, um, you, you don't really know its source. You don't really know how it came to be. You don't know who put it together. And so I think that this information is is very key to every believer, and it will be helpful for all of us to to be aware of some of the things that we are discussing, so that when you are uh, engaging with other uh, people who are outside of the faith, you can be able to make uh, a sound a sound argument concerning what you profess. And in fact, uh, I think it, it was John that wrote that we should be able to have an answer for for those who sort of question our belief and question our faith. And so this knowledge is very key, is very paramount, I think. 
And I think that for all of us who are following the blog post and the podcast as well, will benefit greatly. And so, yeah, me for me, it's, it's great. It's great. It's been great so far. Awesome. Pastor V, anything to add? Um, I think it's been an insightful journey so far. Um, I really just hope that um, it would go out to benefit the audience it is meant for. Like um, we say, uh, posts are meant primarily for um, uh, young believers who are trying to navigate the boisterous terrain of life at the moment because um, as some uh, Michael Heiser would say, we live in a post-Christian world. Uh, gone are the days where people used to accept Christianity just for itself as being authoritative and being truth. Uh, with the rise of postmodernism and everybody now having their own truth, um, uh, we now have to contend for the faith like Jude says, more than ever before. And these are things that equip the saints to contend for the faith that has been handed over to them. Um, most people tend to think that um, the triumph of Christianity is just, um, you just need to believe. But the truth of the matter is we have a message that we know and the, the God of all all flesh and the creator of the universe has told us that this is the truth. And one thing about truth is that it is exclusive and it must be verifiable. And that is what we are trying to provide the information for, to give uh, Christians and non-believers out there uh, facts to understand why we make such an exclusive claim and what are the claims of true Christianity as well. So that's what we have going on. And it's, it's been an exciting journey so far. It really has. It really has. And I do believe that we are accomplishing our goal. Um, so if you're listening to this and you haven't shared this podcast or even the blog post with your friends and family, you're really doing them a disservice because this is a great tool, um, a simplified way of understanding these things. I remember when I was younger, um, I think it was online when somebody asked me, do you even know where your book comes from? Like this holy book that you, you put all your hope and trust in, do you know where it comes from? And I realized I had no idea who had put together the Bible, how the Bible came to be. And trying to find the answer to that by myself led to even more confusion. And so this, this platform or this podcast is a really great tool um, and a really great way for you to come to understand these things about Christianity and not get confused by, you know, all these dubious um, information that is out there, which uh, brings me to the introduction for our topic for today or the last episode on the blog post, which is aptly titled Justify Your Inclusion. Now, before we even, uh, before I let anybody else talk, I just want to say how much I love this title because um, I remember reading a book by Samilia Bawal. Um, I think in, in JHS, I read this book. And it's, a, it's an exam that uh, high schoolers have to take to, you know, justify their stay in the school or justify their acceptance in the school. And I truly, I truly do believe that this really um, reflects how, you know, the, the books of the Bible made it into the Bible, which is what Justify Your Inclusion is about. 
But before I get carried away, I'm going to let Pastor V um, explain to us what he means when he says justify your inclusion or what the, the episode is about. Okay, so when we say justify your inclusion, we're just trying to, because um, uh, the question uh, basically uh, is embedded in the question, uh, it's embedded in the statement. How do the books of the Bible make it into the Bible? Because um, uh, with a lot of archeological finds and um, we have more and more resource material and source data coming all the way from the, uh, mosaic era, the uh, jo Joshua's era, and even right down to the era of Jesus Christ himself. And we find a lot of non-canonical books like the, the Gospel of Thomas, the Spurious Gospel of Judas. Um, uh, we have books like uh, books of other um, cultures like the Code of Hammurabi, all kinds of books, like when there was the Ugarit uh, find to the Ugaritic texts as well. There are so many um, uh, ancient literature out there. Why is the Bible authoritative? Why did these books make it into the Bible? Even in their context of um, uh, Judaism, there are mm -hmm. other books that Jews also hold sacrosanct, not necessarily sacred. Why aren't those books in the Bible as well, like the book of Enoch, all those kinds of literature, right? right. And, but what qualified these books to go into the text and how did the process occur? Um, uh, most, most, most people that are uh, suspicious of the Bible think the Bible was put together by um, white supremacists who mm. wanted to the rest of the world. So there was some um, uh, nefarious poly, uh, religious political inf, uh, individuals who sat down in a council and said that this book will go in, this book will go in, and it will try to, they'll try to, based on that book, control the affairs of this world. The first question, uh, the first rebuttal usually I have for such a for process is, um, uh, have you read the Bible? Because the Bible... <laughs> goes against every every natural impulse of a person right it it shows us the greatest ideal points to us that we cannot achieve the ideal on our own and points to us the selfishness of human ways and mm. some of the stories including the bible included in the bible like the fall of the great man in the bible and the rest if you read the stories carefully the way it takes time to highlight the faults of humanity and the faults of its heroes you would notice that if a man was supposed to write this book to push a certain parochial agenda there is no way we wouldn't have included such stories some say the book was uh, written to push a Israeli national identity. If you read a book carefully, you realize that you walk away with a very, a very disappointed view of Israel. So it couldn't be a book to push their national agenda and the identity. So there is something going on in the book just by reading the book if you take your time to sit down. But uh, like we, we took our time to do in the blog post, we showed how the journey of the books to enter into the text itself was very natural. It was very organic. And then um, there couldn't have been uh, some individuals who sat down to put this thing together. God used men 
but God superintended the process all along the way. Right. So, did you have anything you would want to add to that? Oh, not not really. I think Bethwan has hit the nail um, on the head. I'm just eager to 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 delve into the discussion as to how some of the books entered the Bible as we know it today. Right. And I mean, I think Bethwan mentioned something that um, I think a lot of people sort of ignore because they don't have the answers to is that people assume or there are these myths that go around and I mean you take a book like the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown or even Angels and Demons by Dan Brown and you see that there's um there's this agenda that is being pushed that you know it's men that are behind the, the scenes or men that are behind the curtain and not God as we have ascertained in our previous um podcast but that it's men that are orchestrating all of these things that are happening and putting um, the Bible together as a tool for manipulation or a tool for um, making people do their will. But as Bethman has brilliantly pointed out, the Bible speaks against all of these things, um, against things that are instinctive, instinctively human, right? So it's, it's, it's somebody who has carefully read the Bible will not arrive at the conclusion that, okay, this is a tool that people are using to uh, make people do their will. Because uh, the Bible did, says we should surrender our will to God in the first place. Right. So how, how I mean, we know that there are um, 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament currently, as that's the Bible that we have. So we're going to focus on the Old Testament today. How did the 39 books in the Old Testament come to be? How, who decided that, okay, this book goes in, this book doesn't go in, and how were the books even written in the first place? Okay, so um, as Beth Morelli pointed out in the beginning, um, the, the coming together of the books in the Bible uh, for the Old Testament was very organic. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, and in the blog post, we point out um, the process by which these books came to being. Um, so just like with a lot of cultures in, in that time and in that era, a lot of um, the information that was passed down from generation to generation was through um, uh, oral traditions. So you, you kind of have people um, pass information down to the next generation through the stories that they tell the next generation. And so that is one channel through which um, the culture, um, the beliefs, the values system of, of any people or race during that era is preserved through the oral traditions that they have. Um, and so that was one of the ways that um, the Hebrews were able to um, preserve the knowledge of their God and the acts that he had, he had performed in their lifetime from generation to generation. And so you see that in the scriptures, God um, encourages or instructs them to keep the acts that they have experienced. Um, they tell that story to the, to the generation that is younger than them, and they pass it on so that they don't lose sight of what God has done or they don't forget what God has done. So if you read in the book of Exodus um, concerning the children of Israel, how God led them through um, led them from Egypt, delivered them from Egypt, led them through the wilderness and into the promised land. There is um, 
a deliberate attempt to keep that story intact by telling it orally. So that was one of the one of the ways that um, those acts of God um, came to be as, as we know it today. Then also, um, God himself instructed his, his servants to write or record the things that he wanted them to take note of and the commandments that he gave to them. And so if you read the book of Exodus chapter 14, the Lord commands, Exodus 17 rather, from verse 14 to 15, the Lord commands Moses and says to him that write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the years of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the, the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So this was after the, the children of Israel had engaged in a, in a war with the, the, with the children of Amalek. And God instructs Moses to put the event of, of, that, of that encounter down and write it in a memorial um, or in a book so that it is preserved. So then we have the oral traditions and then you have now the, the written um, record of God's commandments as well. I hope you are, you, are, you, are, you, are getting, you are getting the flow. So we have two channels currently now. Uh, with uh, regarding how the 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 story of the Israelites and the Bible as we know it was preserved, right? Okay, so if if we move further on, we begin to realize that this uh, written uh, how do we call it account uh, continues further down into throughout the history of the Israelites through when they begin to establish a monarchy. And the kings and the scribes of their time begin to record um, the events that happened during the reign of their king. So in the book of uh, First and Second Kings and even in Chronicles, you begin to see um, a deliberate attempt by the, the scribes of the day and those the priests of the time and those whoever was concerned um, to put down all the things that were occurring and all the events that took place. Uh, during those times. So that you see that in, the, in first and second Kings, uh, you see uh, statements like, this is what happened. Let me just read um, what, what we see in the book of, um, where are you, first Kings? A minute as I pull this up. Sure. I'm just, I mean, you just asked the Bible, where is... <laughs> I mean, yeah. were, were you expecting it to reply? Here I am. <laughs> Don't mind me. It's more, more, more or less of me speaking to myself. Um, oh, I'm aware, pal. Don't mind me. <laughs> I think. Uh, are you looking for Second Chronicles? Yes. Yes. If you. Twenty-seven seventy-nine. Second Chronicles. But if you are there, you can just read it for us. So okay. Because now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all his wars and his ways, indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Yes. So within that text itself, we see that um, there, there is a deliberate uh, attempt to record all the acts and all the events that happened during the reign of these kings. And then, so we've had the oral traditions, we've had the written commandments that God himself instructs 
to be to be written. And then we have these recordings um, that um, men in those times and in those era in their attempt to preserve culture and their values um, write or keep a record of. Then you also move forward and then you find that um, God again instructs people that he has um, ordained or commissioned to speak to, their, to his people concerning their ways, uh, primarily the prophets. Um, God, God brings these guys around when um, the nation of Israel has gone off um, the path that they are supposed to be on. And when God is calling them back into repentance, he sends our prophets to deliver his message to them. And he instructs these prophets that um, keep a record of all the things that I'm telling you and all the things that I'm saying to you so that um, it will act as a reference point. Um, even in Jeremiah, I think Jeremiah 36 from the verse one, God instructs Jeremiah and says to him, that take a scroll and write on it all the words that I've spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intended, I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So we see here that this, this, this instruction um, God gives to the prophet seems to um, suggest that God doesn't want anybody to have the excuse to say that, oh, I wasn't around or I wasn't there when Jeremiah was giving the prophecy, so I don't know. But God instructs him that put everything down so that from the time I started speaking to you till today, there's a record of all that I have spoken concerning my people and that everybody can make reference to it and can have the opportunity to make a choice either to turn from his evil way or to remain the way they are and then i visit my anger or my wrath on them All interesting right, so, uh, interesting yeah. there's a parallel text not to catch there's a parallel text because i just felt like pointing it out in sure. habakkuk chapter two right when he says write down the vision and make it plain we've turned that scripture into something it's not about God was actually telling Habakkuk to record what he's seeing, right? So Habakkuk mm -hmm. was a prophet. Record what I'm about to show you and make it plain to the people so that he that sees it may run with it. When you see the information recorded in the vision that God is revealing to Habakkuk, you may be able to run and live your life according to that vision. So you, you, you see, like you just mentioned, so the prophets, so we, we have embedded in the text, we see how God is speaking to the prophets as well. I just wanted to point that out. So, so to you can finish it. Oh, yeah. So uh, I'll just round it up by saying, by pointing to the sources that we had um, for, since we are focusing on the, on the Old Testament, we we've currently have the oral traditions that have been passed down from generation to generation. Then we have the commission writings that God gave to, to Moses. Right, and then we we have we have the historical accounts of tribal leaders, judges, and kings, and then we have the writings and the oracles of the prophets. So these all sum up to the sources um, that provide content for the Old Testament as we know it today. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Right. So um, then, just... um, let me just uh, finish up with something. So uh, okay. along the line you you, you well, there's something that we are noticing here so at the moment we have separate distinct sources right uh, because at mm -hmm. this point in time the technology of books 
or the codex has not been invented. So these are parchments, these are scrolls, these are tablets, these are oral traditions, but they are known to all within the culture. Right. Right. So even when Daniel goes into captivity in Babylon, right? When Daniel is in captivity in Babylon, in Daniel chapter nine, he says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by the descent of a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations in Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel is in captivity. And he's quoting, he's studying the book of Jeremiah and he's finding that what God has Jeremiah to record meant that they would spend 70 years in captivity. So he starts interceding for his people so that they find a way of escape. So you see that the sources are known to the people in and of themselves. In, in between, like how a writer in First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, will say, refer to the book of the kings and the judges, the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. That means there are two separate literature, kings of Israel, kings of Judah. These are some of the things that we must begin to. It takes a more critical reading of the text beyond the devotional aspect for you to be able to begin to pinpoint there, but it's been there all along. Mm, I mean, I find it fascinating that um when Soto was speaking and then the reference that you made in both Habakkuk and in Jeremiah that God keeps saying um make this written write this down make a written version of it let everybody see let everybody be aware of it so that as and when I come nobody can say that I did not know and that's what we have now in the Bible is a written and easily comprehensible set of uh, rules and God's story and God's names and God telling us his his entire will and giving us the opportunity now to choose whether we're going to run with it or we're going to ignore it. And when the day comes that he returns, we would have no excuse because we have the Bible. And so we, and we didn't have to even just rely on uh, creation as we saw um previously we don't have to rely on general revelation he has given us the special re revelation of himself and so we have no excuse for not knowing him for not knowing his will for not walking within that will and i really hope that you know we take our bibles more seriously hmm. but um in the in the blog post they, there's there are two very interesting images that i want us to discuss um there's an image of the hebrew bible which is called the tanakh and then there's an image of the Protestant Bible. And I see that how the books are arranged and the number of books differ. Can you throw some more light on that? Okay, so um, we have what we call the Tanakh and the Tanakh is sort of like a, an abbreviation. It's an acronym for Torah, Nevi'im and Ketuvim. The word Torah is the word that is usually translated law in uh, our Bibles, but I think the term, the term law can be um, um, deceptive because when we think law uh, um, in our 21st century, we think constitution, right? So if you're going to read a law book, you're sort of trying to go and read a constitution. But the term Torah, I believe, is best translated um, um, teachings, right? Teachings or principles of life. 
right? Right. But but over it's because when the Torah was translated into the Greek, when the um, Tanakh was translated into the Greek, the word that was used to translate um, uh, the Torah was the Greek word nomos. And nomos is what is translated into English as law. So that has carried over, right? Okay. Yeah, but um, so we have the Torah, then we have the Nevi'im. The Nevi'im is the collection of books known as the prophets, right? And um, uh, in our, so, so in our English Bibles, English Protestant Bibles, the law and the, the law, we call it the Pentateuch, right? Uh, the Pentateuch is just means five useful vessels, five useful things in the Greek, right? So the law and the Pentateuch uh, have the same arrangement then uh, we have what we call the history writings for the uh, for the um, uh, for the uh, Hebrew text in the Tanakh. It's known as the um, Nevi'im, and they they make some of the historical writings because they consider those historical writings as prophetic history. So when we are reading the, it, it tells you even how to read it. You are not just reading history; you are reading history from a theological standpoint, right? And that is why. Um, knowing how to even navigate the text is important. It's not history for history's sake, right? Uh, oh, theologians right. call it theologians call it Deuteronomistic history because if you read from um, uh, I think Joshua all the way down to um, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Second Chronicles, you realize Second uh, Chronicles, yeah, you realize that the entire sequence of happenings in the book sort of correlate with the recapitulation of the covenant in Deuteronomy, right? When Moses recaps the covenant in Deuteronomy, the blessings of the covenant, the curses of the covenant, everything plays out in the rest of the books that follow. So that's what, why they mm. call it Deuteronomic history. So that's how that remains okay. And we have the writings. So for, for us in our English Bibles, we have a, um, 39 books in the uh, in the Tanakh, they have 27 books. And the difference is because we, there are 13 books that are lumped up into one, for instance. Uh, the, what we call the minor prophets are lumped up into the writings of the 12, right? And um, uh, we also have the, a, a slightly different arrangement in, in that uh, first and second kings, we separate them in our Protestant Bible. It's merged. First and second chronicles is also merged in the Tanakh. And they also um, uh, match the writings of Nehemiah and Ezra as one document, right? It's the Nehemiah-Ezra document. And those books must be read as a unique whole. If you want to properly understand it, you should read them as a unique whole. So that's that's how the texts are arranged. So it's, um, and that's what causes the little... We, we have arranged them differently uh, for, for reasons being that we want to have some, a little bit of um, um, order. So we arrange them in our Protestant Bibles in terms of law, history, prophets. And one of the things you must understand is that the way the books of the Bible are arranged are not necessarily chronological. You, you get some chronology up to Second Chronicles. Then after that, um, uh, the way the prophetic books are arranged. One thing that most people don't sometimes take into cognizance is that the prophetic books are books of prophets occurring within the Deuteronomic history period. So mm. um, if, you are, if you are reading somewhere in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and you are, you are reading about Hezekiah and you see Isaiah pop up, 
it should ring a bell that the book of Isaiah fits somewhere in there. Right. Right. Jeremiah right. prophesied in the time of King Josiah. So if you are reading Second Chronicles and you are seeing Josiah, the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations fits somewhere in there, right? Amos fits way earlier. Hosea comes way earlier. So it's the arrangement sometimes becomes a little bit problematic for us, but that's what we have. We just need to know how and what, when to approach the books, right? right so let's right. say if you are doing if you are doing mm-hmm. a study on Hezekiah in Second Chronicles, right? It would be prudent on you to um, read portions of Isaiah to understand what was happening uh, spiritually, right? Whilst mm. Hezekiah was, was king, right? It will give you proper context when you read right. the book. Right, and right, the, last portion the, book, the last portion of the book is the Ketuvim, known as the writings, include the Psalms. And the Psalms was the first book of the writings. So sometimes in other portions of the scripture, you notice that when they are giving the general um, overview of the Old Testament, they refer to it as the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the law and the prophets, mm. or the law, prophets, and the writings. So depending on the order, that kind of nomenclature refers to the entirety of the book of the Old Testament in the Jewish culture. So that's the Tanakh for you. So uh, typically, uh, if you take the Tanakh and you take the Hebrew, Old, uh, the English uh, Protestant Bible, Old Testament, we have the same books, slightly different order, same content. Same content. That's that's very good point. Yeah. Okay. Very. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, so I want us to take a very giant leap back into time, just so we understand where we've gotten to now. So we have this dude, Abraham, um, and God speaks to him and God says, you um, get up out of your father's country, go into the wilderness. I'll show you what to do when you get there or on your way there. And he does it with his family. And he does that. They go out into the wilderness. And then um, over a period of time, he gets children and his children gets children. And then fast forward, his descendants are slaves in Egypt and um, somewhere along the, the way Moses comes along and fast forward they're leaving Egypt they're going to the promised land but they spend this really long period of time in the wilderness and as all of these things are happening they are passing on their history or how they came to be a nation through oral um, tradition which so too brilliantly explained for us. So they have that happening. And then at the same time, you know, coming out of Egypt and all of those things, God was working wondrous miracles in their midst. And he's telling them, you know, as they are fighting these other nations, trying to secure their place in the world, God says, write these down, write down that this is what happened at this time and so, so, and so. So they write those down as well. So we have those records. And then, you know, when they settle into their promised land, finally, Uh, They have kings and judges and they have conflicts with the nations around them. They have battles they win and battles they lose. And these also are um, documented by scribes. And so we have those as well. And the kings write books sometimes and all of these things happen. So we are having all these different books. At what point 
um, were these books canonized into the Tanakh or into the Old Testament? And who made the choice that, okay, this book can, can go in and this book doesn't go in? How, how did the canonization of the Old Testament happen? Okay, so um, I personally think from my research and from my reading of the text, I think um, uh, we have Ezra to thank for that big job, right? I feel like um, uh, if you read the text, you realize that he, you see his hand at work in there. So, so at this point in time, like you said, we have different sources. Even the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Law of Moses, are not necessarily authored by Moses, but are attributed to him. Because when you read it, there are right. so many pointers. There are so many pointers in there. Like you see languages like to this day, right? The to mm -hmm. this day language it could either be a scribal inclusion or it was written after the fact. Because when I'm uh, writing something, I say, oh, that's the name of the place to this day. That means I'm writing it after the fact. Right. right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so th those are those are some of the clues and the hints we begin to see but um, uh, there's something uh, happened in the life of the Israelites that I think naturally led them down that path so in 586 BC and Judah was taken captive by the Babylonian empire and uh, if you know anything about bible history about almost uh, a century or more earlier um, uh, Israel had been taken by the Assyrian Empire, right? And Israel was lost to history, right? So I don't know if you've noticed mm. uh, any documentaries about the quest for the lost 10 tribes. The northern 10 tribes were lost to history because they were taken and scattered, right? And right. so uh, Nebuchadnezzar with his Babylonian Empire comes and also takes the southern uh, kingdom of Judah because they follow in the same footsteps of um, uh, disobedience to the covenant uh, that God made with them. Mm. So while they were in exile, right, um, they, every intuitive culture, people that meditate and think a lot, sometimes take pause and uh, take account of their lives and find out how did we get here? Right. And by reading through some of the texts of uh, Jeremiah, which they had, by going to some of the prophecies of Isaiah, because this, the coming of the Assyrians and the, the Babylonians was not something that actually took them by surprise. God prophesied it through the prophecies of their prophets and the writings of the prophets as well. So they, they had a certain record to understand why we ended up here. Right. So, right. Yeah, so to, to be able to... Um, uh, uh, preserve the worship of Yahweh, uh, help posterity understand how we ended up here and how not to end up here again, right? They begin the process of putting together the text. So they start collecting their oral traditions because mind you, they are also in a culture in Babylon that is trying to impose on them their religion of the day, the worship of idols and the rest. So they are doing two things here. The nation of Israel are doing two things here. They are preserving the worship of Yahweh and they are, they are, they are, they are saving their, 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 the next generation from committing the same errors that brought them here, right? Yeah. So they begin to uh, put down the oral traditions, they record the 
they put together their so all the sources that they had the victories of their kings and everything are put together in a way that tells a very unique wonderful and sad epic story of how they ended up there and even in the books of the prophets there's also the hope of coming out of um, uh, uh, captivity as well so i believe that um, uh, ezra puts together this compiling work by the pen of the scribes and the leaders and they are able to put everything together and we have the book as it is today so by about 450 bce there was a huge uh, bombshell that was dropped in history there was the tanakh dropped in history an interesting thing about the tanakh especially about the book of uh, psalms that psalms contains the songs and the hymns of the people right so you read a psalm like i think it's a psalm 163 it says uh, by the rivers of babylon that's where we wept uh, when our enemies or captives desired us to sing the Lord's song, and they said, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You follow the story, just that realize that it's intuitive. These are things that are happening to the people that have been recorded for us, and we are seeing God at work through it all. So that's, that's when the, um, the Tanakh was, was put together, and that's why we see a lot of these editorial inserts we see the record of Moses in a book that is attributed, the record of Moses's death in a book that is attributed to him because whilst putting it together, the editors have more information. I, I, are you getting it? So yeah. the books were written to a certain point, yeah. but when the editorial work is going on, the editors have more information. That is why they can add it to this day language. They can, that's why they can even say, oh, Moses was the meekest man in all the years. Moses did not write that about himself. You realize that it's not a language that a meek man will use about himself. We'll use a, but, exactly. But when the editors are exactly. putting the book together, when they are putting the book together, they see that the way Moses was powerful and Moses was um, uh, very quiet and humble, Yes, he was the meekest man in all the earth. This is the man who sees God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Yet when people oppose him, he begs on their behalf. Right, so they put in those editorial inserts and all. So that's how we have right. the Tanakh. But there's one more historical detail then uh, we tie it up. So, okay. Um, okay. But Bethmon, before you even touch on that historical detail, I think that we, we need to acknowledge the work of the post-exilic scribes uh, on, on their mm -hmm. return to, to the land of Israel in documenting these things. Because you realize that in the book of Joshua, where the Bible speaks about um, the people served Joshua, uh, the people served God all the days of Joshua and in the, in the lifetime of all the elders that outlived him. But after, they started going their own way and, and everybody did what was pleasing in their own sight. And I think that it is important for us to acknowledge that without these records, and you, I think you, you, you pointed that out, that the, his, the, the mistakes of history will be repeated, you know, and it was very crucial for, for those things to be put down to, um, as, as, uh, as the scribes did, so that for posterity, we can now refer and, and, make, and make those right choices the next time we are faced with certain decisions. Yeah, so I, I think that that's very crucial for us. And maybe in our own personal lives, we need to also start uh, perhaps documenting stuff and not forgetting uh, things that happen to us and not knowing uh, the, the decisions to take when we, we, we reach a certain crossroad 
because we probably have been there before. And for the sake of those who are to live us, we need to be able to put some of these things down. So maybe maybe you might even write a, a small document for your family about the history of your family. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. it's important. Yeah. I think it would be very beneficial to, to know the things that your ancestors have been through and even how God brought them out of it. And Charlie, just a, a mini family Bible. It's not a bad idea, Kran. But before we go into the historical detail and everything, we'll just take a short break and we will be back. Um, I'm loving this conversation. Very eye-opening. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back from that short break. This is still between the lines, the official podcast for the Timothy Project. Um, you can follow us on the underscore Timothy underscore project on Medium on Instagram. Um, and you can also follow us on TTP underscore Ghana on Twitter and WW TTP Ghana on Facebook. Right. So you can follow us on all of these social media platforms. You can engage with us. You can ask us questions. I mean, we would love to hear from you. We would love to hear how this is impacting you. And, you know, any questions that you have at all, we'd love to answer. So we're, we're, we're going to continue the conversation on Justify Your Inclusion. And um, Bethmond was about to take us on a historical detour. So Bethmond, please go ahead. Okay. So, so far, um, uh, we've looked at the sources and the combination of the sources in Greek, in, in Hebrew, right? But there's, if you read your Bible, sometimes at the bottom of your Bible, you see the inscription LXX, and it's called the Septuagint. Um, the Septuagint is basically the translation of the Hebrew Tanakh into Greek. How did that document come about? Because that is the first major translation of the Bible. Even before we get the New Testament, that is the first major translation of the Bible. Uh, after the, the um, uh, exile returnees uh, returned to their land, most of them spoke um, Aramaic, which was a broken version of um, um, Hebrew, right? So even in Jesus's day, he spoke Aramaic. If you read the book of Mark, realize that Mark and John also do a sort of translation when Jesus, whenever Jesus speaks Aramaic, right? Uh, they do that translation first. So most of the people spoke um, uh, Aramaic. This explains why if you read um, uh, an exile book like um, uh, Daniel, portions of the book of Daniel are recorded in Aramaic instead of the original Hebrew, right? Um, uh, but after they returned, there was the rise of, uh, so Cyrus, leads the uh, gives the people the power to return and then um, uh, the persian empire falls then comes the rise of um, alexander the great and one of the things that alexander did whilst uh, uh, he was conquering the then known world was he embarked on a process on a program known as hellenization so hellenization was the the forceful um, uh, the forceful penetration of of um, uh, greek culture to the rest of the Denon world. We have a similar concept like when the uh, English monarchy co- uh, colonized most of the, Denon, the known world and taught everybody English, 
right? So just like hmm. English, English is like the like the modern day lingua franca. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Greek, Koine, Koine Greek, which was the Greek they spoke at that time, became the lingua franca, uh, the language of the common people. And um, most of the people in the Jewish people were now scattered. There were more Jews living outside of Jerusalem and Palestine than there were living in Palestine at the time, right? So, um, and uh, we know the story, Alexander the Great's uh, empire collapses, his kingdom is handed over to four generals, the kingdom collapses from four to two, the Ptolemaic empire, which is um, uh, down south towards the Alexandria, Egypt region, and up north was the Seleucid Empire, which was um, led uh, by the Antiochus. Of... So there was the struggle for power between these two powers. But whilst in uh, in the regions of Alexandria, these faithful Jewish people needed to continue the worship of God. So two things happened: the worship of Yahweh. Two things happened during this period. There was the development of the synagogue era, right? Because there was no temple. The temple was, the temple had a central location, Jerusalem. That is where God has put his name, right? So you can't build a temple anywhere else, right? But what they had were synagogues, which were places of gathering where faithful Jewish people would come and be taught by their leaders and their scribes the law, right? So, um, most of these people are being born in Alexandria, Greek-speaking area. They are learning more Greek than they know how to speak Hebrew, right? And um, uh, so uh, the leader mm-hmm. of the Ptolemaic Empire in Alexandria, um, uh, Ptolemy Philadelphus II, um, uh, launches a, a program to help the Jewish people because he... At that time, Jerusalem was under the control of the Seleucid Empire. And it was a political decision, not just a religious one. It's not like he, I don't think it's because he loved the well-being of the um, uh, Jewish people under his um, control. But I felt it was, Think if you think about it deeply, it was, a, it was a masterstroke of a political move. In the sense that if I don't help these people find a way of making their, uh, their religious home here, they would move into Jerusalem. And when they move into Jerusalem, they give the Seleucids more power over me. So he launched a translation campaign. So he called um, uh, 70 of the, the tradition leader uses 70 or 72. Uh, 70 of the, um, um, the Jewish scribes and asked them to translate the Tanakh from Hebrew to Greek, right? And they all went out and did independent works. But when they came out with their independent work, they came out with identical documents. So that's why the book is given the name, the Septuagint, which is the translation of the 70. So for the first time, we have a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament in Greek. Fast forward, when Jesus comes onto the scene, there are two books, two major books available. There's the Tanakh, the Hebrew version, and there's the Septuagint, the Greek version. And these books are used simultaneously during the time of Jesus and the apostles. If you read the works of the apostles in the New Testament, you see that there are times where they put from the Septuagint, there are times where they put from the Tanakh, depending on their audience and who they are speaking to. 
I hope mm. it, it's believed that when Jesus entered the temple in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, when he read from uh, Isaiah that the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he read that version from the Septuagint, not the Tanakh. Right. So that's, that's uh, how we have those translations. So when we are doing biblical translations and uh, interpretations, and you see LXX and all those kind of things. I guess telling you, okay, from this scripture, we took the source from this uh, book. Sometimes we take from the Tanakh, sometimes we take, but same content. Right. I think it's interesting. Um, one thing I need to point out is that the Septuagint was translated from the Tanakh, meaning the Tanakh was already in existence because exactly. I have had some conspiracy theories about how, you know, the Septuagint came about, like you said, because of a political movement and it was used to control the Jews at the time and everything. But it's important to note, like we're seeing now, that it was just a translation of a book they already had, a book that was already in existence into a language that was more commonly used in that time. Right. Yes, it was the, 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 the motive. Uh, you see, I don't downplay the motive being political. But the, the, the motive being political does not take away from the truth of the, of the material. Mm. Because, yeah. because um, uh, the, the leader of Alexandria at the time, Ptolemy, did not want people to move into Jerusalem because at that time, Jerusalem was not under his control. The control of Jerusalem used to vacillate between the two empires. So some, at certain times it belonged to the uh, empire in Alexandria at a certain point in time, it went to the Seleucid Empire, finally fell to the Seleucid Empire but, uh, before the Romans came in and swept everybody else. But that was, that was how it was going. So to keep, to sort of consolidate power in Alexandria, he realized that, okay, you know what? Let me um, uh, empower the Jews in my domain. Right. And even that also became a sort of sense of contention between the, the, uh, Greek, Greek speaking uh, Jews and um, uh, uh, Hebrew speaking Jews. You see that, you see that uh, battle popping up in Acts chapter six as we read along. So you realize that the fine lines are always there. The, the facts are there. It just needs a little bit more uh, critical reading. Mm -hmm. True that. <laughs> I, I really, um, I'm appreciating this series more and more as we move forward because I'm just seeing how um, the answer really, the answer for the Bible is in the Bible. The Bible is an answer on its own to itself. And it just requires you to be intentional about understanding what you're reading and understanding, you know, the time in which it was reading, the context, the authors, um, and all the questions that we have had about Christianity, uh, how the Bible was even put together is answered by the Bible. It, it's, it's quite amazing. I think um, uh, one, one more thing that we must look at is um, um, how Jesus viewed these books, right? Because um, uh, he's the, he's the um, central figure of Christianity, right? He's the reason why Christianity exists in the first place. Um, if you look at um, Luke chapter 24, verse 44, um, uh, when Jesus in his... Um, uh, post-resurrection uh, discourse with the disciples, he was having a chat with them, and this is what he said. He says, 
Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So uh, you remember when I spoke about the Tanakh, I told you that it was the, the law or the law of Moses, which was the popular right. description, the, the prophets, the Nevi'im, right? And the mm. Psalms which was the first book of the writing. So the Psalms was a way of referring to all the writings together, right? So Jesus Christ uses this threefold description of the text. And he says that the things written about him in them must be fulfilled. And that is why he had to die and resurrect. So he uses this threefold. So Jesus read the Old Testament, right? That, that's the, the right. and, and he, he, he didn't just read it, Jesus knew it. He, he knew it inside out. He knew that he was the fulfillment. And if you read his conversations with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the, you realize that he, 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 he knew the, these books in and out. Another important thing that I must point yeah. out, another important thing I think I must point out is the, the widespread use of the, of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. You see, the Old Testament as we have it, the Tanakh or the Septuagint or the Protestant Old Testament as we have it, was used as the source material for Christianity, for um, uh, the Pharisees and the Essenes. Mm. The Pharisees and the Essenes were Jewish. Uh, you know, one of the things that um, uh, we sort of uh, fail to recognize is that when it comes to Judaism, Judaism is not a monolith in the sense that it's like Christianity. There's no, Christianity today does not have one sort of defined form. Yes, we, the basic tenets of Christianity are that we, we believe in one God, uh, the Trinity, yeah. the Lordship of Jesus Christ and his atonement, sacrificial atonement for our sins on the cross and that he's the only way to the Father and in him we have eternal life. These are the basic tenets of Christianity. But if anybody who has ventured into Christianity knows that we are not a monolith, Right, they're not carved out mm -hmm. of one rock. Same way was with Judaism, right? Because they had the, there were the Sadducees. The Sadducees usually used only the first five books of Moses. They were not concerned about the, the prophetic books, right? They 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 focused on only the first five books of Moses. So anytime you see Jesus having a chat with the Sadducees, watch Jesus. He quotes only from the first five books of Moses. It's very interesting. Huh. Whenever Jesus is having a chat with the uh, Sadducees, Jesus had more in common with the Pharisees than the Sadducees. And it's amazing that he had more in common with them theologically, but they were the people that hampered him the most in his ministry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, because he had more in common with them the most because they had similar theology in that they believed in the law, the prophets and the writings together as a whole and the, the outworkings of reading those books as a whole, the spiritual worldview, they had everything together in common. Right. So um, uh, the Pharisees also use these texts and uh, the Essenes, the Essenes to whom we, we, we are thankful for, for preserving and writing down the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Essenes were more of like a, a puritist group, right? They were puritist. Um, and Israel. They, they viewed themselves as pure. They had to uh, distance themselves from the, the, the scourge of the mixture that had occurred. So they separated themselves, lived in the desert areas spends their time worshiping God, writing and rewriting the scrolls, copying them down for us. And we, ha we have them to thank for the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran, right? So you realize right. that we have three opposing factions all using the same source material, 
they couldn't have sat down to put the book together as a team and later oppose each other based on the source material. It makes no sense. <laughs> it's like saying yeah. today, it's like saying today that um, um, evangelicals, charismatics, and Protestants sat down to write the Bible and later come out to share their, their differences on it after coming together to write it. The math doesn't add up. And so that's, that's how we, we have to look at it. So we've looked at the organic coming together of the text, the various sources within the text, the putting together of the text during the post-exilic period, the work of the scribes, we looked at the translation into the Greek, we looked at the widespread usage, even in the day of Jesus, and um, um, the use between by the Essenes, Christians, and Pharisees. These, these we think are very good. So you realize that the books of themselves, in and of themselves, are authoritative. The, the simplified measure of canonicity people use is that was the book written by a prophet or one recognized to be a prophet or one recognized to speak on behalf of God. So that's why the first five books are attributed to Moses, although he didn't write everything in them, but historically they've always been attributed to him. Um, and most of the other writings were written by prophets or under the guidance of a prophet. So majority of the mm -hmm. Old Testament is actually prophetic literature, right? And um, uh, it is believed that even the Deuteronomicus history was written by and penned down by court scribes, but actually finally put together by Jeremiah. It's up, it's up to, it's I still up for debate in, in uh, the scholarly world, but I lean towards that uh, leaning as well, that the Deuteronomic history, I think was put down by the pen of Je either Jeremiah or his, his um, uh, trusted scribe, Baruch. Right, okay. It's, it's, it's quite a lot to take in, honestly. Um, and if if you're listening, I mean, I would advise you to take your time, listen to it all over again, or even go back and listen from the very first podcast, just to 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 sort of streamline the information so that you come to understand exactly the point that we've been driving across this whole time. Um, I think what would help is also creating a parallel. Um, think of it as perhaps. The, think of the Israelites as perhaps um, a tribe in Ghana, you know, started out, um, let's say the Ewes, we have their oral, through oral tradition, we know that they escaped from King Agokoli and they used so-so and so um, techniques and tactics to escape and then they came to settle here and then think of them having kings and then the doings of these kings being recorded and then, you know, eventually we come to a point where um, there are other tribes amongst them and they are speaking different languages. So now we're translating this text that we have into a language for them. Because I think one thing that we suffer with is that it seems so much like a story to us that um, we ignore the fact that it's history. Like these things did happen. The Israelites, um, the entire story of Abraham coming out all the way to the tribe of Israel being formed, uh, to the nation of Israel being formed with all the different tribes and all the different things that happened, did happen and were recorded. So these things are not fabricated. Um, it's, it, it's like saying that it always don't exist because um, you think that there's the book that uh, somebody puts together to manipulate humanity. So um, this tribe doesn't exist, no. It, they did it. They, they they do exist, and 
it's their history that you know has sort of been correlated into this book so it's not fabricated it's not um something that has been massaged so that it presents the truth in one way or another this is history as it is this is and it's not um, just history. It's history that has been breathed by God. It's history that has been influenced and inspired by God. And all of it reveals to us the person of Christ. And we will talk more about that in the next podcast when we talk about the New Testament and how that came to be canonized. Um, once again, this is Between the Lines. Uh, we hope that you know we're helping you out in your journey as a Christian or to becoming a Christian. Uh, Thank you for listening. Stay blessed. Stay awesome.